Welcome to Make Your Move, the podcast designed to help you get on the property ladder and then figure out what the hell you're doing once you're on there. From deposits to mortgages, surveys to moving day, we can help. Make Your Move is brought to you by Really Moving, the price comparison site for moving home services. Let's get into our episode. this week's episode of Make Your Move, we're going to be talking to Brian Murphy, who is the Head of Lending at the Mortgage Advice Bureau. He's going to answer all our burning mortgage questions, and he's going to talk to us about what opportunities there are for first-time buyers, how mortgage brokers work, as well as what not to do when trying to get a mortgage. Enjoy the show, everybody. So welcome to the Make Your Move podcast. This week, we are very excited to welcome Brian Murphy from Mortgage Advice Bureau. Hi, Brian. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jez. Good afternoon. So perhaps if I can just take a couple of minutes just to explain who I am and uh, who we are. So I'm Brian Murphy. I'm Head of Lending for the Mortgage Advice Bureau. We're a national brokerage. Some would see us as a network. We have around 2,100 brokers right across the UK. So I wouldn't necessarily quite say we're in every postcode, but we have brokers literally across England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. We're like a lot of people these days, a lot of our brokers work from home, but a lot also work within uh, estate agency offices. And many also work very closely with national builders, sometimes parking themselves on new homes build sites as well. We're, we're very prominent and you can do business with us, be that face-to-face or virtually as we are doing this this afternoon or through telephony or email or any other media. So we're very much open to letting the client lead in terms of how they want to engage with our business. Perfect. Thank you. Can we start with sort of how do mortgage brokers work in the sort of simplest um, way? A lot of our listeners are first-time buyers or or sort of attempting to become first-time buyers. And I think sometimes it can seem a bit like a huge, scary thing to start the process. Yeah, no, absolutely. A broker is somebody who acts as the interface effectively between you, the customer, and the mortgage lender. And obviously, a lot of people will be familiar and know brands perhaps on the high street. So your Nationwide, your Halifaxes, HSBC, Santander's, and many building societies, including Nationwide, Skipton, Coventry, etc. And they're people that obviously, you know, a customer can go and interface with themselves, either either in branch or through telephony, traditionally. But what the broker does, effectively, they sort of take away all the, all the sort of hassle of you having to go and speak to multiple, or basically having a, a multiple round of conversations. Because basically, if you went and talked to the Coventry, you would only get information about the Coventry, not surprisingly. If you went to HSBC, you'd only get information about HSBC. So unless you've got an awful lot of time on your hands, that's, that's quite a daunting task. And, and probably the other key thing to say, from a broker perspective is that we can deal with all of those plus a whole raft of other brands who are mortgage lenders many of whom customers won't have necessarily heard or experienced because many of them are only available to the broker community so now some of those for instance will be perhaps engaged in a particular sector of the market so they may be focused around areas such as say buy to let so people who are investing in property to let to tenants but there will be lots and lots of other brands out there and I'm thinking perhaps people like Kensington Mortgages Aldermore uh, some of other brands which we associate or loosely call non-bank lenders who are really there only for the broker broker channel. And what we do is we look across the market based on each and every customer's individual circumstances and we work out what we think is the best solution to meet that individual customer's needs and circumstances moving forward. So that's very broadly how we work. So we're working on behalf of the customer. We are definitely not working on behalf of the lender. And and also what the broker can and will do is the broker can act as that interface, particularly with first-time buyers, perhaps if people are not familiar with the process, in things like even as arranging viewings or putting forward an offer and so forth or making further inquiries around the property because of course the broker is interested in helping the client achieve their aim which is in most instances home ownership so what point in the home buying process should you look to hire a broker great question um <laughs> no, no one size fits all i think you know again if we if we sort of take the, the first time buyer 
market or potential first-time buyer market. So people who are thinking about buying a home or becoming homeowners, they may well have their own perspective in terms of when they want that to happen, ideally. Yeah, they might want that to happen tomorrow. They might want that to happen three months, six months, 12, 18 months time. So I think there's never a right or a wrong time in, in short. And I think there's nothing wrong with anybody either arranging a call or, or having an appointment or going and seeing a broker and just having that initial conversation to actually understand what their timeline is. And their timeline, they may have their own perception and that may change following that conversation because it may be, for instance, that they don't have enough deposit or they don't have access to maybe the bank of mum and dad or perhaps their income is insufficient at this point in order to get them the level of borrowing that they need to get into that sort of entry level of housing, etc., etc. Or again, which I'm sure we're going to probably cover, that their credit report at that time is not of sufficient quality where they can borrow what they need to borrow at that time. So again, and sometimes, if we're honest, with some people, home ownership, it may be an aspiration. I'm not saying it's not achievable, but it may not be achievable in the sort of short to medium term. It may have to be a longer term aspiration for certain people, depending on their individual needs and circumstances or job or or income, etc. And actually having that, let's say, relatively frank conversation with the broker will at least position that in, in, in the way that people know where they stand. And they, and they perhaps don't then have a sort of full storm, so to speak. So no right or wrong answer. But again, it depends on obviously what the client wants to achieve as well. And then yeah, that that time frame may change, particularly once they've had that conversation and the broker really has a, a much better feeling of the client's personal circumstances and position. Yeah. So, it, I mean, in some ways, it's a good starting point to get sort of educated in what you need to do next and what's the sort of right, the right next step for you. Yeah, I think a lot of people potentially, I, I wonder if it's the other way. I think a lot of people I've spoken to think, oh, there's no point speaking to a broker yet. I, I don't, I don't have a 10% deposit or I probably don't make enough money or, and actually maybe there are circumstances where there's a bit more flexibility. Absolutely. And that's a great point. So perhaps take that as a, as a, as a, as a lead, a customer, a client, potential first time buyer maybe living at home with mum and dad or maybe renting or whatever, but they may not have a 10% deposit and many, many people do not, but that doesn't mean that they can't buy. So there are plenty of mortgages available for people with, say, a more limited funds, 5% deposits only. So that way you, you actually buy the property with a, up to a 95% mortgage. And actually recently, we've seen a little bit of innovation or ch- changing policy, particularly from the Skipton Building Society, where they've introduced a scheme for people who have been renting and where they can demonstrate a period of sustained rent and also maintaining other utility bills and so forth. They are subject to income and affordability and various other sort of stress tests and criteria. They will potentially lend that client up to 100% of the purchase price. So in short, no deposit required. And that is something that we and other broker groups in the market have been pushing for for a while because so many people who are paying rent are stuck paying rent and while they're paying rent they're unable to save that deposit and it's that sort of chicken and egg situation you just can't do you know you can't keep going at the same pace and we know rents are rising also at a rapidly rising rate and what this will hopefully do for a, you know, a cohort of people in the market is to allow them to make that first step now as i said you know it's tightly underwritten and rightly so and the and the credit checks and there are certain criteria over and above other mainstream mortgages but for a group of people this is this is a step forward and it will be interesting i think over the next weeks and months to see if other other lenders fall in and maybe look to offer something similar which again more choice brings greater opportunity and like everything in life more choice and more providers probably helps bring the price down over time as well so is it almost worth like can you talk to a broker before you're ready to actually like work with them and say hey I, I'm not sure and get that advice from them before you actually go ahead and actually use them to find a mortgage. Totally. Absolutely. And and, and that would, you know, we, we would always advocate, you know, having a conversation in order to understand what it is the client wants to achieve 
and, and the broker will be very frank with them around whether that is achievable or not, or it may be that it's not achievable today, but it might be achievable in three or six or 12 months' time. And so, yeah, that conversation will, will determine what your level of borrowing might be based on your income or the type of employment and circumstances you have. If you're employed, you know, how long have you been employed? What type of work are you in? Are, are you perhaps in a an income which is likely to maintain relatively stable? Are you in an income which is likely to perhaps rapidly appreciate? So, for instance, if you're perhaps a graduate recruit, in particular occupations, legal or accountancy maybe, or medicine or something, you might be on a, a relatively rapidly rising income expectation. And therefore, there might be other products out there which are better suited to you and might allow you to, let's say, even enter into having ownership slightly earlier than perhaps you perceived because of the fact that lenders will take that sort of thing into account. There are other providers out there who will, for instance, allow slightly more flexible borrowing requirements for people who are in what we loosely call the sort of blue light services. So ambulance, fire service, police, that, that, that type of scenario as well, a little bit more flexibility. And also from a from a lender's perspective, those people are in, I think it's fair to say, relatively secure employment. You know, if, if anybody's in secure employment, you know, public servants probably more are than others. So lenders are prepared to take a bit more of a bit more lenient approach in terms of what they're prepared to offer so they might somebody who's perhaps a typical first-time buyer or buyers because most most purchases take place with say two two people typical purchase might be able to borrow maybe up to sort of four and a half times their combined incomes but for certain occupations or for certain types of employment categories some lenders will go beyond that particularly if the, the combined income reaches a certain threshold and for others they might go for instance up to five times and in certain circumstances, they might even go up to five and a half times, which again allows people to get into housing at the step of the ladder earlier rather than later, or it might even allow them to buy into another area where perhaps they thought was out of, out of their reach initially. So lots and lots of options. And, and until you've had that conversation with the broker, you probably don't know the breadth of the market, if that makes sense. So yeah, absolutely engage with the broker, have a conversation. We can also provide you know various tools, or, you know apps and so forth, which help people plan in terms of their savings and so forth. So you know, if I was to save X pounds per month, when does that make me sort of quote mortgage ready? Again, you know, have people utilised or investigated things like lifetime ISIS? Because effectively, you know, if people use that type of facility as a savings tool, that's free money. You know, who doesn't love free money? Perhaps the government are giving you something back. So again, you know, but again, a lot of people won't necessarily have been exposed to that type of thing until they've spoken to a professional who can actually provide some guidance and advice around that. Yeah, you spoke a little bit there about um, credit scores. Can you talk a little bit about how credit scores work and why they're so important? Absolutely. Not every lender uses a credit score, but most do. <laughs> and and some will use it as a, in the background, although it won't necessarily be a definitive yes or no as to whether they're going to lend to you, but sometimes they use it as a, a reference tool as well. So yes, in answer to your question, Jess, very important part of the marketplace because what a credit score really does is it gives a lender who won't know the customer and won't even be introduced to the customer because obviously the broker's acting as the interface, but it gives the lender a, a, a window on their financial conduct effectively. So it, it obviously tells them who they have their, say, bank accounts with, what credit commitments they have, be it credit cards or personal loans or maybe store cards or something like that, or car loans often, you know, a lot of people have PCP type agreements and so forth. And it gives them a report on how well the customers conducted themselves with those finance providers. So have they always paid them the monthly payment? Have they, if they in, in a case of a store or a credit card, have they always paid off their statement or do they roll their statement on and just perhaps pay the minimum amounts? So these things can work for or against you. So if you, if you always, for instance, pay off your statement every month, that's a big tick in the box. You'll get more points and therefore your scorecard is, is, is better. For instance, if you've been late payments to your credit card, store card, that's the sort of thing that be like, again, and that would apply equally to other loans and commitments as well. If you've had perhaps got an overdraft facility, but perhaps you've gone beyond your overdraft allowance, that could be a negative or an unauthorized overdraft. You've gone into overdraft without approval of the bank in doing so. 
all these things can be plus or minus against you. And, and from a customer perspective, again, it's important to understand where your scorecard sort of sits before you enter into a credit agreement, such as a mortgage. Because if it's not as good as you, perhaps you, you, know, you, you might think to yourself, well, I've, I've never had any debts. But it, there may be that you've had late payments and you've not realized that that has perhaps proved to be a negative factor in determining your scorecard. It may be that you've got something recorded against you, which you're perhaps oblivious to. So for us, if you've been renting or perhaps you've been a tenant with perhaps in, in your student days or something of that sort of nature or been sharing a house with other, with other people and you've perhaps moved around a lot, things may have been lodged against you and you're not aware of that. And sometimes, unfortunately, credit reference agencies are in receipt of sort of default notices, and sometimes they're wrong. <laughs> so sometimes people get, you know, information that's recorded against them, which actually isn't true. And then by using, say, something like Check My File, which is a sort of an all-encompassing, allows somebody to sort of see their profile and uses all three primary, what I would call, credit reference agencies, which are TransUnion, Experian, and Call Credit. They're the sort of operations that all of their information is sort of collectively parked on this site. And therefore, you can see what your score is. And if there's something that looks like an anomaly, you can then go away and check that out and obviously pick that up with the provider concerned. Because, you know, errors do occur, believe me. And that can be the difference between you obtaining mortgage credit and not obtaining mortgage credit. Or it might be that you can get mortgage credit, but you can't get it at the best rate. You have to use a lender who charges a higher interest rate. And don't be wrong, there are people who provide mortgage credit for people with more, let's say, adverse or impaired levels of credit background. But invariably, you'll have to pay more in interest terms to generate that. And you probably won't be able to borrow as much either. So that might also limit or inhibit where you can buy and or what type of property you can buy. So these sort of things are massively important to understand. And the third thing to add to that is as well is that you also need to make sure that you're open and honest with the broker uh, when when having that conversation so people you know can, can often have their say selective memory which is fair enough but you know people need to be actually really open and truthful because if we submit an application on advance behalf and they've not told us about something in the in the background it will be found and then you'll get a declined case probably from that lender and then you go to another lender and that lender will then be aware that there's been a declined case it becomes a, a worst case scenario and again if you've had multiple applications for credit fairly recently you, know, you might have applied for a couple of different credit cards because perhaps you've got some debt that's probably not good either would you say i mean a lot of people especially with the cost of living you know a lot of people do use credit cards they use loans they have cars on lease things like that is having debt itself a problem or it's just how you pay it off sure. or the percentage of debt that you have or correct great question no, having debt and credit is not a problem. In fact, having debt and credit is good because it allows a potential lender to understand how well or not you deal with your credit commitments. So if you pay everything off on the due date, it's never late. You pay off your statements every month. You don't have an unauthorized or you don't go beyond your overdraft limit or you don't go into unauthorized overdraft, et cetera, et cetera. That allows them to determine that you are a good credit risk because you know everything you've borrowed, you've paid back within the terms and conditions provided. Having no credit equally, no credit at all, is not great either because that doesn't allow the lender to actually get a perspective in terms of what sort of credit risk you represent to them moving forward. So having credit, but obviously having it absolutely buttoned down and paid on the nose month in, month out, and, and being able to demonstrate that because the, the credit reports will actually take data back as far as six years. So it's not just about what's happened in the last, say, three, six months. It's about having that sort of long term. Again, don't panic on this. Don't think, oh, well, because I had some defaults or maybe a couple of even CCJs or something of that sort of nature three years ago. Some lenders will ignore that type of thing, provided it's been within a certain time frame. You know, often we find buyers, all buyers, not, not just first-time buyers, but you know, home movers, landlords, etc. People have sometimes defaults for things like telephone accounts, you know, th those types of sort of things, you know, where people have perhaps switched providers. And sometimes with a customer, there might be a ceiling fee, you know, when somebody leaves a, a scheme, a contract, 
and maybe the provider, the mobile provider, charges them about thirty pounds or fifty pounds to sort of cease the deal, but you've cancelled your direct debit before that goes through. If that doesn't ultimately get paid, that company will probably come after you for that debt. And if they don't recover that debt, they might issue a CCJ or something against you, or it's that registered as a default. Now, that could be quite serious if you didn't know it was there, which is another reason why it's good to check your file to see if there's anything lodged against you. Credit itself is not a problem. And obviously, taking a mortgage is credit. You know, <laughs> that, there's, no, there's no bones about it. You know, it's, it's a big credit commitment for a long time. And therefore, because it's a credit and probably for most people the single biggest credit commitment that most of us ever take on lenders need to be as sure as they possibly can be that you're going to pay the mortgage month in month out and that you're going to do it on time and they're not going to have to be chasing you for you know has there been a problem and there will be problems for, for certain people because you know unfortunately events happen in life unfortunately people lose their jobs people unfortunately sometimes become ill they're unable to work generally they may not necessarily get paid full sick pay or they might get sick pay for a while but then it perhaps ceases after you know a month or three months or possibly six months or whatever, if you're self-employed and you don't have what we call permanent health insurance in the background, then you're probably not getting paid at all. In fact, you know, if you're not working, you're not earning. And therefore, what lenders are very, very keen to do is to ensure that they're putting themselves in the best possible position to protect their position, but also putting you in the best possible position so that you don't end up with a debt which is unserviceable and un- un- unmanageable. So again, when a lender assesses a, a loan mortgage application such as as we provide, they're not only looking at just in terms of affordability today, but they're also looking at it in terms of affordability for a rising interest rate market. So if interest rates went from X to Y, could you still afford this loan? And that's been really quite key. That's That's been a sort of fundamental change that which came into the market in 2014, which was the what was literally called the MMR. And what that required lenders to do was to stress test a customer against a given set of circumstances. Yeah, I was smiling when you said that originally about the um, phone fee, because that literally happened to us when we were buying a flat and my husband had a 62 pence fine on a old phone account <laughs> that we didn't know until we you know spoke to a mortgage really broker. Really and even common. trying to then pay it because the account had closed so you can't get through to figure out who yeah this is really uh, yeah yes yeah how do you pay 62 pence yeah <laughs> and then how do you demonstrate that the 62 pence has been paid and the thing is these credit yeah. reports don't get updated tomorrow they get updated on a sort of cyclical basis so if you've got your mortgage application in the lender's obviously done their search and they've seen that you've got that default well it's going to be a while before that default is not showing on your file you might be able to get some sort of confirmation from the company from whom the default was issued that you have now paid this and normally that will go to be suitable evidence but actually on your file it won't necessarily show for a period of time because obviously these things take a while to, to manifest themselves. Yeah, we kind of took it that it would take a few months and that's, I mean, it worked out fine. The flat we were going to buy was terrible anyway. So it, it was it was actually a blessing. <laughs> but we um, yeah, okay. we took it as an opportunity to, yeah, look into our credit ratings and actually improve them and sort of all the things, you know, being on the register, things you sort of don't check. Electoral register. Absolutely. Sorry, that's another factor as well. Good point. Again, a lot of people don't realise, you know, that's a big thing. And again, sometimes people, you know, if they've been renting, they might perhaps rent for six months somewhere or 12 months and they move around. Perhaps they fail to register with the electoral register. And that's something, again, that lenders use to basically verify who you are as well and where you live and who you are as who you say you are and so forth. So things like that are all quite important in addition to your credit rating. And obviously, you know, any lender will require evidence as to, you know, who you are. They'll want to see something like obviously a passport, driving license, something of that sort of nature, which, you know, we can do on your behalf brokers but in addition they'll probably want to see something like a utility bill or two maybe bank bank statements all of which you know show your name and address and so forth so yeah they're, they're the sort of what is loosely called sort of basic housekeeping points but again these are all the sort of things that you know first-time buyers in particular they can do ahead of tee themselves up for becoming mortgage ready so if you get all your you know ducks in a row so to speak hopefully putting yourself in the best possible position to move forward at the point when you're either able to do so or you find the property you, you want to buy i was just thinking you um you mentioned about 
being self-employed. So I imagine that has a bit of a different approach yeah. when it comes to getting a mortgage. Or I've heard you're not meant to, you have to be self-employed for, is it three years or a certain number of time, a certain amount of time? Uh, yes. So yes to all of those <laughs> in short, but probably not three years necessarily. But again, different lenders will take slightly different approaches to how they treat the self-employed. Some are, let's say, more mindful than others in terms of that. Some of the, again, what we would loosely call the non-bank lenders, you know, non-high street brands, Again, I mentioned you know people like Kensington, TML, and Clydesdale, some of these sort of bands. Yeah, they very much sort of focus on those types of clients. Yeah, some lenders will consider a self-employed client with you know maybe only a year's accounts, particularly if they've been working in an occupation, perhaps in an employed regime, and then they become self-employed and they're doing the same type of work. So they've perhaps gone from perhaps being maybe in, in IT, for instance. Somebody might have been working for a company as an employee, BOA, but then they've set up their own business. They've effectively probably continued to do the same type of work. In fact, they might have even been working for the same people that they used to be employed by, but they're doing it on a contract basis. And therefore, they've got a contract, you know, which sort of perhaps is rolling or evolving. And again, a lot of lenders will look at those types of clients with maybe only up to, say, 12 months sort of income evidence. And they won't necessarily always need to be audited accounts. Some some will do it on a projection and so forth. But yes, the approach around the self-employed is, should we say, a little more intrusive than it would be for the employed. Because obviously, what the lender needs to satisfy themselves is that if it's a business and it's a trading business, that it's doing the level of turnover or has the client being paid or they're being paid through dividends or obtain profit or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So different lenders look at the methodology in terms of how the company sets up in, in slightly different ways. But again, some of them are specifically set up to deal with that type of business. So it's not a no-no, but probably slightly less options than perhaps somebody who's in, let's say, mainstream employment, but wouldn't necessarily pay a differential for that as a, as a result. But again, because we've had things like the pandemic in the last few years, and therefore a lot of people would have had quite perhaps significant gaps in earnings. Some people were furloughed. Some people, obviously, the business almost sort of ceased trading or they couldn't work because they have to be home-based. Yeah, again, that's caused gaps in the ability for some people to generate accounts over two, three or years. They might have had 2021 or 2020 and then a gap in 21 and then back in 22 and then 23. You haven't got that linear line, perhaps, of history. But again, lenders are being much more pragmatic around that sort of thing now and saying, well, you know, the reason we've got a dip in income in 2020 or 2021 was we had the pandemic. And clearly that person perhaps couldn't perform that role at that time because obviously we're all in lockdown. So factors are there is a much more what I would call realistic approach being taken to some of this stuff than perhaps historically would have been the case because you know, that's the world we now live in. And that's become the new, the new normal, should we say. And obviously something like, I think, 5 million people in the UK are, are deemed to be self-employed. And that's a pretty significant part of the workforce. I think there's a, a circa 30 million people in work, of which around 5 million are self-employed in varying degrees. So that's a pretty big part of the workforce, and they need the same access to finance as the rest of us. So, so when someone uh, thinks they're ready or they want to think about applying for a mortgage, what would you say is the first thing someone should do when preparing for that process? Uh, are we assuming that they've already had a conversation with the broker prior to give them that sort of understanding of, you know, probably what they can borrow and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, you know, we would normally arrange a mutually convenient appointment. We'd obviously complete the necessary documentation and paperwork, so take all the evidence that we need to provide to the lender. And that would again include, for instance, you know, in, in the employment service sector, we'd need to see any evidence of one's payslips, although we hopefully would have seen those at least provisionally in the previous interview, whenever that took place. We'd probably want to see, you know, three, six months levels of payslips probably bank statements as well in support of that. Obviously, make sure that the two tally up, you know, that everything's right and above board. P60s, things like that are very good as well. And then obviously for the self-employed, we'd obviously ordinarily need to see accounts and HMRC sort of documentation confirming you know, tax paid and things like that as well, all of which will sort of hopefully confirm the, the levels of income that the client's disclosing. The customer would 
normally go through a process whereby we'd submit the application. They'd normally pay any fees associated with the mortgage products. Sometimes there might be a booking fee or an arrangement fee, which is charged by the lender. There may be a valuation fee, but although in the purchase arena these days, a lot of lenders now provide what we call a free valuation. So the client doesn't actually pay that per se, depending on what proportion of the purchase price the loan represents, i.e. the loan to value. Some lenders now undertake what they call a desktop valuation or an automated valuation, but they don't actually necessarily physically visit the property because they've got data from data sets effectively where they can make an informed decision as to the property's value or worth. But normally if the client's borrowing, let's say at 90 or 95%, they will probably want a, a surveyor, charter surveyor acting on behalf of the lender to go and visit the property and carry out a basic mortgage valuation. Now that is not a survey, that is, that is just purely for the lender's purpose to get a perspective on whether or not that property offers mortgage security. So does it represent value? So let's say very crudely that the property is priced at £200,000, the client is borrowing £180,000. Does that property provide security for that £180,000 of debt that we're issuing? And obviously the surveyor will sort of come back and say, in most instances, yes, it will. Sometimes there won't. It might be sometimes there might be a down valuation, you know, pretending on the, the, perhaps the, the, the repair of the property. On the other hand, you know, ordinarily, once that corroboration has been achieved, that the lender has done the necessary checks and balances that they need to do, you know, invariably they tend not to necessarily write to employers in the way that they probably did years ago. Sometimes they'd write to employers to confirm income, but normally when you come evidence in the form of you know, online generated or printouts of payslip to P60s accounts, that type sort of thing, all of that is sort of evidential. And also lenders have abilities through API linkages to actually corroborate a lot of that information through third-party sources as well. So, you know, if you said somebody owns £40,000, often the lender has got systems and checks in the background that is doing some further data checks to ensure that that's the case. All this sort of takes place in the background. Obviously, they're looking at the credit file reports as well, assuming, and again, based on the score, will determine whether or not you're sort of good to go or perhaps not. Sometimes there's queries, you know, sometimes if there's anomalies in pay, for instance, if people have a degree of income which is variably based, performance based, might be sales related or something. So somebody might have 60, 70% of their income is, say, basic, and then another 30, 40% might be based on performance to varying degrees or sales performance data or even things like overtime or commissions or something like that. Some lenders won't necessarily take all of that income as being evidence of income. Sometimes they'll only take a proportion of that because, of course, it's not necessarily guaranteed. So they might, for instance, if you had, say, 30% of your income, which was variable pay, some lenders might only take 50% of that for calculating what they'll lend you. Others might take 75 Others might take 100. But again, horses, of course, a customer, though, or a buyer wouldn't necessarily know that. That's why you use the broker. The broker has that knowledge and understanding. You could walk to two or three different lenders and come out with two or three different answers, and you wouldn't know why you got those two or three different answers. That's where the broker comes into play. And basically, the, you know, while that's going on in the background, the offer is then generated, assuming everything comes back to the tick in the box. And actually, what we're finding the last sort of couple of years is that lenders' performance in turning around cases from sort of application to mortgage offer has actually improved quite significantly. So if we go back probably three or four years, it wasn't uncommon for lenders to be sort of probably issuing offers somewhere between sort of 15 and 20 days. Sometimes it can much, much faster than that. But sometimes, you know, that was probably the average, not just since COVID, but actually since the last couple of years, quite a number of lenders have upgraded their what we call platforms that they assimilate all the information on and that's allowed them to work a lot more efficiently and again even allowing for remote working and things like that and therefore a lot of what are called the manual processes have been taken over by technology and then what they're using the people for is the actual underwriting the deal you know and actually scrutinizing the information and what we call underwriting actually making a decision on the case so what we found probably in the last year or two is that probably on average application to offer has probably come down so 
maybe to sort of 10 days, 12 days, and, and many are performing under that as well. So it's a pretty straightforward process. We've got, as you're probably aware from the press at the moment, there's a lot of volatility in the market at the moment in terms of pricing. Lenders are having to, in many instances, withdraw product ranges relatively short notice because of pricing changes that they're incurring. And also, if one lender pulls the range of products currently because they're getting a lot of volume come through, that then pushes volume to other lenders, i.e. in terms of where people sit in the cost index, if you like. So mortgage brokers use sourcing systems to actually assimilate and determine who's pricing and sourcing best at this point at any point in time. But if you take, say, the top six lenders who probably collectively account for 70%, 65 70% of the market typically, if you take one of those out for a couple of days, that 10 or 12% of the business that they would ordinarily be doing suddenly has to go somewhere else. But if it goes to one of the smaller providers, because that smaller provider is particularly well-priced at that point in time, that can mean a massive wall of business coming into that lender within a matter of hours. And they might typically get a hundred, a couple of hundred cases a day ordinarily. And suddenly they, get, they might get a thousand cases in over over a day. And then the effect on their ability to service and get those offers out is obviously not surprisingly massively impacted. So, yeah, the volatility in the market is a problem at the moment. That's not something the customer needs to worry about per se. But what it does sometimes mean is that where we think we've got a product today with a particular price that we're going to apply to you for, unless we can get that case in and packaged by a certain point in time, maybe it could be, say, 5 p.m. this evening, that deal could be pulled. And then when the lender come back in, could be the next day, could be a couple of days later, invariably at the moment, prices have gone up. So that, again, causes additional trauma, stress, hardship, and for, for everybody, one, for the broker, because it's more work, but two, for the client, because probably the price has gone up, which means that their mortgage repayments will have gone up as well. So, you know, this is sort of contra to where we've been for the last few years, because from, for so really since 2012, 13, mortgage pricing has been sort of steadily falling until last year when, you know, the war in Ukraine and obviously what that did to inflation as we all know it and then what that's done to Liz Trust government intervention in September last year, the mini budget, when we know what that did to the bond markets and so forth and then the impact that had on the swap markets. And so, you know, and, and bank, the Bank of England were raising interest rates anyway, albeit more modestly. But what we've seen in the last, say, few months is we've, we've now got a base rate at 4.5% as, as, as we sit here today. The Bank of England, no committee are meeting next week to, to take a view on the next possible change in rates and, and the likelihood is we'll see a further rate rise. But the last couple of weeks, as I said, the swap rate market has been quite volatile and rates have been literally sort of like their swap rates. And, and so as a consequence, lenders have invariably been putting their prices up. One, because they risk being underwater with their price that they're currently offering their mortgage products at and therefore losing money. And two, because the volume of business they're sometimes getting is more than they can handle. So they price up in order to discourage business for a period of time. But if one pulls out for, for a couple of days, as I said, that lend heaps more pressure on others out there. And if you're a small player and you've suddenly become extremely attractive from a price perspective, you know, sort of be very wary because the chances are you'll get, you'll get hit with a mountain of business. Because there's probably in the region of, you know, certainly more than 15,000 brokers in the market, could be 25,000. I don't quite know the actual numbers. But, you know, suddenly many of those suddenly focus on one particular lender. The lender's got absolutely no knowledge of how much is going to come in and when it's going to come in. It could be that, there's 10 deals an hour coming in, and then suddenly 100 deals come in in an hour, and then another 100 deals. And before they can actually withdraw those products, they, they might have taken 1,000 deals in. Because you know, withdrawing products is, is all very well, but it, there is a process they have to go through to do that. So it's 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 a it's a difficult market at the moment um, for, for brokers as well. But yeah, that's what we're here for. But it's even more difficult if clients are trying to manage that themselves, because they won't have that knowledge and information to know what's coming down the line. And that's where brokers are there to help. As I said, they're, they're acting on behalf of the client. We, we are the customer's agent. Yeah, I think the idea of trying to do it yourself must be horrific. <laughs> 
Well, I, if I can give you some further context, um, in 2022, Mortgage Advice Bureau, just just us as a brokerage, we we dealt with 108 lender brands across the UK. That's that's the range of providers that we utilised to find mortgages for all of the clients we, we generated mortgages for last year. Which, by the way, was over 150,000 transactions last year. So yeah, it's and, and the market's changing always because every year perhaps another couple of lenders come in, maybe a, perhaps a lender disappears, but you know new lenders come in sometimes got slightly different propositions, which means that they might be slightly more open to a particular sort of client sector and so forth. And again, that's fine because it it brings further choice generally. So the market has grown and there's more lenders now than there were three, four, five years ago, and we think that will continue to be the case for the for, for the foreseeable future. But you know, like everything. There will probably be one or two lenders that even over time perhaps don't survive or perhaps choose to exit the market because they're perhaps not making enough money or perhaps they've just determined that that sector of the market is too competitive to be to be effective in and create the sort of margin that their investors want. But you know, again, that's where brokers are there to guide the client. You know, I could probably name half a dozen lenders that, to be frank, you probably would have never heard of and you would never have found, you know, had you been left to your own devices. But actually, you wouldn't have been able to transact with them even if you could because they will only accept business from regulated entities such as ourselves. Some, something in the region of 81, 82% of all mortgages originated in 2022 were through the broker channel. Uh, and also, if you go to the high street, you don't know, unless you've done a real lot of research, you don't really know at that point when you walk into any of the high street brands, whether that brand sits you know, at the top of the tree or the middle of the tree or the bottom of the tree in terms of their price. When you can go on plenty of comparison websites, but again, these things changing constantly. And sometimes going in to see a high street brand, you won't necessarily get to see a mortgage advisor there and then. You might have to book an appointment. And invariably, sometimes that booking an appointment could take, might just take a couple of hours, might take days, but it can often take weeks because, again, a lot of lenders have really cut down on the amount of customer-facing advisors they actually employ these days. They would rather the business came in generally through the broker channel because they're not employing those people. Now, you might see a deal on the high street which you know, could be the top deal in the country, but your ability to access it may be impacted by the fact that there is not the capacity within the lender to see you as a client, so you miss out. But actually, if you'd come through the broker channel, you would have got it. Because most brokers will work not just nine till five. (laughs) They'll work, you know, into the evening, on weekends, and they'll get your business submitted in order to get you over the line. Yes, so kind of building off of like being ready to apply for a mortgage is there anything or things that you as a customer like sh- really shouldn't do when you're ready to apply for a mortgage? Um, yeah, I, I would probably say, Jez, you know, don't apply for multiple credit in the lead up to coming for a mortgage because that would probably get, you know, a, a lender will see that. Even if you don't transact, they will see that there's been an application for credit and they would probably question as to why. So, for instance, somebody might have used, you know, using the raising of a personal loan, you know, whether in a sort of window in the lead up to perhaps applying, they might be using that to fund their deposit. <laughs> now, because you know, most lenders will want to see the source of deposit. So if you've got, you know, your 5% or 10%, whatever it is, you know, have you been saving? Where has that deposit come from? Is it something you've saved over, you know, one year, two years, five years? Has it been gifted to you? That's, that's not a problem, but they, they want to see where it's come from. Now, is it your own money? Was it gifted? Was it family money? That's fine as well. But if it's been derived from from another provider in order to find five or 10 or 15, whatever thousand pounds, that's another credit commitment that you've got, which will probably nullify what that, that lender is prepared to lend to you because they know you've got a credit commitment now to generate, you know, to repay £10,000, probably on a personal loan basis, which is probably more expensive than it would be on a mortgage basis and, and, and over a shorter period of time as well. So they would probably be the things I would 
generally suggest that people didn't do. If they need to raise money for a particular purpose, yeah, that's different. But if they're using it for that reason, then that's probably not a good idea. Like, you know, but again, we all sometimes need to go and replace the car or one contract has ended, another one needs to start. That's different because all of that will be factored into your overall affordability. But using those funds to fund your deposit is not good because, again, that also shows that you've not had the ability probably to save what is deemed to be a reasonable level, 5%, through, through your own your own sources, so to speak. Do people really try to do that? They, they try to pay for their deposit? Um, well, some do, and, and some and some will, will do. You know, but but a lot of lenders will will see that as a as a, as a negative and a no no. But yeah, it it, it it can sort of come through, and there, and there might be reasons for it. Again, it might be that somebody's been financially, dare I say, caught short, whereby they've had money and they've had to pay that money out for something else, and then you know. But again, you'd probably need to evidence and demonstrate that in some way. So, you know, perhaps by way of example, maybe somebody might have had a debt or a tax bill or something like that that they needed to pay and, and they needed to pay that off. And obviously, you can't say no to the HMRC. So, you pay, so that, that was my house deposit money. But if you can show that that money had been sort of saved up over a relatively, you know, sustained period of time, then there may be reasons and somebody may allow you to do that. However, again, the fact that you've now got a new credit commitment to cover, say, 10 or £20,000 or whatever it is, is probably going to be a more expensive way of borrowing than if you'd borrowed it on a mortgage or you know, more of it on a mortgage. So, uh, yeah, but again, just taking on credit in general in a lead up to a mortgage, probably not a good idea because new credit commitments, if you don't really need them, are probably going to work against you, particularly if you're leaving balances outstanding and things like that as well. And also, if people get rejected, don't then apply for another one. And then, because again, those footprints, you know, will potentially impact negatively on you in terms of, you know, future credit. Again, there are lenders out there that are more than happy to take that on board, but it probably means a higher level of borrowing cost in order to, to get your funds you need. Would there be, I suppose, the other side of that sort of things not to do or, or whether it has an impact, if your um, income is going to be impacted, so I assume like changing job before you get a mortgage or, or if you were going to go on to maternity leave, and things like that, does that make a difference? Um, well, yes, it can do. Um, but but in I mean, again, if, if, if you, you know, if somebody comes in with the express intention of taking a mortgage and then going on maternity leave and you're not, you know, you weren't aware of that, then, you know, is the lender going to know? <laughs> uh, I suppose the reality is, um, you know, so if somebody's sort of planning, I, I'm going to get my mortgage and then I'm going to get pregnant and go off maternity leave, you know, that's that probably happens all the time. If somebody comes in with the express intent of, you know, going on maternity, you know, if they're presumably joint mortgage borrowers or something like that, the income is going to be assessed on their income. But but obviously they're going to be on maternity. Their income's going to drop for a period of time, and then they you know they may or may not be coming back to work at some future point. Again, the lender's going to be a little bit more cautious around that. But are they going to know they're on maternity at that time, or sort of they're planning on maternity? You know, the broker would have to, to notify them. But obviously, if it's patently obvious, then I think you know, it's, it's on the broker's responsibility to do so. Sorry, what was the other part of the question? You... Oh, um, changing jobs. Actually, yeah, sorry. So again, you know, obviously, you know, people change jobs all the time. In general, most lenders are not too concerned with change of job particularly if you've gone from employer a to employer b in the same industry and you've probably gone perhaps for more money or better terms conditions etc the lender can see you've changed for the right reasons you know you've gone from earning forty thousand pounds to fifty thousand or whatever the number is some lenders will be a bit more careful around things like initial probationary periods so you might be in a probationary period with a new employer 
whereby you know you're not guaranteed until you work there for say three months or six months possibly and you get your probation signed off etc so some some lenders would be a little bit more concerned about that but again if you've normally gone from a job a to job b and you progressed you've done it for the right reasons the employer's taken you on for that reason and most lenders are pretty relaxed around that sort of thing some might have require you to have been there for a given period before they will allow you for that income to be utilized in the same way the self-employment one is probably more more challenging so if you've gone from being employed to self-employed and you're doing that next month that's probably a no-no <laughs> because you've got no track record as a self-employed person. There might be certain circumstances where you're going as a contractor and you're perhaps even contracting back to the company from whom you were employed before. So, you know, some people do that where they've, they've gone from being employed to self-employed, working for the same organisation, and effectively they're getting paid a daily rate. Now, again, there's a number of lenders out there that will probably consider that, but it might depend on, again, what proportion of the property purchase price you were borrowing. If you were borrowing at 95%, they're probably going to be more circumspect. If you're borrowing at 70 or 75%, they're probably going to be less concerned. By going from employed to self-employed, you're probably going from a salaried position of X pounds to a daily contractor rate, which probably has jumped your salary twice twice over. But obviously, you've then got the responsibility of doing things like paying your own tax and NI, considering things like pension provision, which obviously the employer has no longer any responsibility towards, etc. And also probably providing for things like, you know, maybe private medical and et cetera, et cetera, and, and paying for holidays because obviously you won't have any holiday pay or sick pay as you would as an employed person. So there's lots of pros and cons as to why somebody does that. What obviously lenders are really good at doing is working out the fact that you might have gone from earning X to Y, that your everything now rests with you. And therefore, how much of that income they will consider to be useful for, for mortgage assessment purposes, you know, will, will, will vary, you know, very much between lender to lender to lender. But, you know, some are more comfortable with, with lending in that space than others. And actually, often it's the, the non-bank lenders and often people like the smaller regional building societies. They've got a real appetite for that type of sort of business. You know, they, they really focus on that sort of thing because they have the resources to sit down and understand the client and underwrite the client on a what I call a human basis rather than using a scorecard and a credit score type sort of position and just, you know, mass data and so forth. Yeah, they just don't have the the, the volume going through the big six, big 10 do. I think it's just, I mean, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I think what a lot of our listeners might be surprised by is that perhaps it's not all as doom and gloom as it sounds when we sort of see it on the news or people talk about mortgages, it does always tend to be a sort of fear-based, you know, there's, things are dropping out, it's volatile, we can't do anything, you probably can't afford a mortgage. Actually, it sounds like it's a lot more personal where it's, you know, your individual circumstances are taken in. Absolutely. That's a great, great point. Just probably what I'd say in summary is that I think people should try and not ignore, but they should try and put to one side the interest rate number, okay? Because... We all get a little bit hung up on rate, you know, interest rates typically have gone from sort of circa one to two percent 12, 18 months ago to four, five, six percent now. Now that's a, that's a significantly, don't, don't, I'm not underplaying that in any way, shape or form. But at the end of the day, it's about what people feel comfortable paying. And we'll all have in our own minds a budget that we feel comfortable with or not. Okay. And obviously the lender does the same. So the lender will look at a client's income. And they'll also very much look at a client's typical expenditure, and they'll do this on what they call a detailed affordability summary, where often they'll take what we call ONS, Office of National Statistics data, easy for me to say, and they'll look at you as a sort of customer against the norm. And if you've got expenditure which is way under the norm, they'll probably apply the norm. <laughs> yeah, But if you're way over, and you, yeah, there may be reasons why you might be way over, they may take your your data as well, and that might mean you, you can borrow a little bit less than you would ordinarily. So lenders are always erring on the side of caution. And of course, as I said, they will also have to build into their affordability, potential future rights. And obviously, most people over the last few years, 
the last 15 years generally tended to err on the side of fixed rate mortgages, be they two year, three year, five year, et cetera. But we've seen a little bit more appetite, certainly following the, the mini budget last year, for people moving to tracker rates, although that seems probably sort of eased back a little bit now because obviously rates have continued to rise beyond where most people expected them to plateau. However, a lot of people you know, will say, for me, my, my, my mortgage budget is, let's say, arbitrarily £1,000 a month. Because you know, somebody might have been paying typically in a rental, because I think the average rent across the UK is about £1,100 a month, depending on where you are, of course, in the country. So people might say, my budget's £1,000 a month. Provided my mortgage fits within £1,000 a month, give or take, plus all the other utility bills, I don't care what the number says on the front. I'm happy to pay that. Now, obviously, people need to have a degree of flex over and above that as well to what I would call plan for a rainy day, you know, because you know, who knows what's around the corner. But on the other hand, the lenders are doing that as well because they're building in that degree of flexibility and headroom, as they call it, in terms of stressing the client against where the, when they come out of the fixed rate, where rates may be thereafter. And yes, rates have gone up a lot. But for a lot of people, the number is is almost a secondary consideration. It's that's you know whether we're, we're arranging rates today for people for, for new mortgages at ninety five and some of these new skips and mortgages, and the rates is on those in the high fives and probably approaching six percent. But provided it fits within the client budget and obviously it meets the lender affordability, that's fine. Because for some people, owning the home and paying at 5 and 6% is better than renting the home and not having any housing equity growth moving forward and that effectively paying somebody else's mortgage. Because all the while they keep renting, and again, for many people that don't have the benefit of the bank and mum and dad, or just as I said earlier, can't say because continually paying rent, they'd rather pay now and, and get on the housing ladder and hopefully build some housing equity, knowing that in time, that housing equity will mean They'll pay their mortgage off, assuming they made their payments over 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever years. And at the end of it, their house will, they will own that house outright. And then they don't have to be paying rent in retirement out of a so probably a substantially lower income. And, that, and that's a key factor in this country. There is a big cohort of people who are probably going to be financially quite poor in their later life because they, because they haven't invested in property, unfortunately, or they haven't, haven't been able to invest in property. And they're going to be forced to pay rent, market rent, on a, on a level of income, which is nowhere near what they would have had as, as earnings you know, while they were employed. And for some people also, who haven't got good or uh, adequate pension provision, they're going to be paying that on, let's say, state pension and a bit of whatever they've accumulated through through private means, which for many people will probably mean that they're living a very, very poor lifestyle. Whereas at least if you're owning your own house, you know, that's probably your biggest part of expenditure, as we said, be that be rent or, or mortgage. And if you haven't got that rent to pay, that's you know seven eight nine thousand pounds a month you're not having to pay out and that's a really big factor moving forward. So hopefully that gives you some context as to you know I think for a lot of people yes interest rates are significantly higher than they were and they'll probably continue to rise for the, for the short period. But hopefully that we will get to a point of plateauing. You know I, I I can't give you a crystal ball scenario of when that's going to happen. That's you know it's way above my pay grade and if if I'm honest I don't think the Bank of England know that either at this moment in time. But the reality is rates will probably plateau at some future point, probably fall back at some future point. Do they get back to where they were 12 months ago? Probably not. But probably the next new normal will be somewhere above where we were 12, 18 months ago, but not where we are today. And there will be a period of, just, of adjustment. And again, as a as the old boy in the room, my first mortgage, when I took my first mortgage out, I paid, I think it was 11.2%. But my mortgage was so much smaller then than it is, to, you know, today in, in relative terms. So it's, it is all relative. You know, we have had a, an unusually long period of ultra low interest rates, and that's been largely attributable to various 
economic issues, you know, not least of which was, of course, the pandemic, <laughs> uh, which you know, absolutely crucified the economy for a period of time. But, you know, other factors have come into play now, as we said, through, you know, largely as a result of the, the war in Ukraine, what that did to things like oil prices and grain prices and gas prices, and, of course, how that feeds into all the products and services that we all tend to buy and utilise as a, co- of a consequence of that. And then, the, the, you know, the budgetary issues that occurred last year, as we know, it's it's caused a lot of pain and damage. And until inflation gets back under control and people can see it starting to drop in a meaningful way, interest rates are going to remain elevated. But, you know, hopefully we're, we're getting towards the, the top of the curve. Brilliant. Thank you. That was, yeah, I hadn't even thought about the fact, you know, the impact on renting long term. We've talked a lot about with some of our previous guests about, you know, whether it is better to jump on the ladder with something that's not perfect, but you can afford that works for you just to get there and then, you know, move up as you're on. Absolutely. I mean, look, Andy, there's no, there's no right or wrong answer because, again, it's it's very much a personal decision. and We're not here to say people should be buying or they shouldn't be buying. That's got to be a, an individual decision that each applicant or applicants comes to individually or collectively together because people have got to do what they feel is right for them. We can provide advice on you know, the whys and the wherefores of what one course of action might do versus another, but people have to make their own decisions. But as I say we're still seeing in our market, and again, in a, and hopefully this is a positive statement, we are still seeing good levels of home buyer and still seeing relatively high levels of first-time buyers coming into the market because people are, again, are genuinely saying, well, I have to live somewhere and I'd rather be paying money. If I'm paying money out, I'd rather be doing it as an owner than as a renter, If, it, if assuming it's broadly similar. If, if, if home owning was twice as expensive as renting, people probably wouldn't be doing it. But it's currently not, even with interest rates having gone from, you know, mm. sort of one, two percent to four, four, five, six percent. And and therefore, as a consequence, you know, people are being pragmatic. And I think they're making individual choices, which are, you know, they feel are right for them. And we've had even less transactional activity in certain times when interest rates have been ultra low as well. Again, it's how people feel about themselves and what's right for them individually. And no two no two customers are the same. And that sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it's absolutely true. You could have two people with the same jobs, the same incomes, the same almost sort of backgrounds, but they've got two different perspectives in terms of what's important to them. And it's about individuals making their own choices. We're here to help them fulfill that. And you know, hopefully help help more people into home ownership. Oh, I love that. Thank you. That's yeah, that's that is comforting. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brian. It's been brilliant to have you on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you very much for, for, for inviting me. So that felt like a surprisingly positive talk yeah. about mortgages. <laughs> yeah, very interesting, actually. I'm very surprised by how individual it is because i just always just had this idea that like if you did one thing wrong they'd be like no you can't get a mortgage like you change your job you can't get a mortgage but to hear that it's like they take it more case by case and it's like if you can just prove like hey i can still pay back you'll be approved it's, it's that's really yeah that's a positive thing to take about it but like it's not like one rule of like this is how you get mortgages how you don't you like you could prove that you're okay to get one on your own individual merit rather than just you know sweeping statement about lenders well it's just a lot more about being a human rather than being a number on a page which i thought is what it was which Mm. is lovely yeah i I can't imagine having to do that without a broker yeah because they have such access to all these different deals and you just it sounds so hands-off like you just let them kind of take care of it like you just focus on you the things you need to do and they can do all the complicated bits yeah 
uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to have to deal with that research, uh, understanding rates and things. I would much rather someone who's an expert could look at what I make and what I spend and be like, this is what you can afford. This is a good deal for you. But yeah, I think I really hope that people who are listening feel emboldened by that to actually go and talk to a mortgage broker. Did we establish whether you can talk to them for free if you just want to like chat with because he was saying about you chat with them to decide whether you need whether you're ready oh, yeah, and yeah. you might not be that ready to, to be free yeah. from, from every- you can just get advice from them which is i think a really sounds like a very useful thing to do, <laughs> just get advice because then you might be like oh i can't i can't afford a mortgage right now and then come back to them later but being able to just talk to them about like is it doable for me mm. it just takes a lot of the the guesswork out of it <laughs> Yeah, I think because we can give, you know, we can say you can probably borrow 4.5 times your income or whatever. But like Brian said, if you are going to become a doctor or you're on a career path that's going to grow, there might be more options for you. So it's a great place to start with free information that's personalized to you. So we have rough, you know, rough amounts. We can say 4.5 times your income um, as a general rule. But actually to get a really personal start to your buying journey that kind of equips you with what you need to do next so if you know you need to go check your credit score and improve it if you know you've got debts you need to pay off it just seems like such a much more positive hopeful personal way to start the process and so many people like brian said don't have a 10 percent deposit and kate said the same thing last week mm-hmm. but you shouldn't let that stop you just because it seems to be the standard number we pick actually there are there are options and there's loads of them out there. We just don't always have access to them because they're personal to you. So I think this was a really interesting episode and I'm so pleased we had a mortgage expert to talk to. The one thing I've taken from this podcast today is that the numbers we hear on the news aren't necessarily the ones we should be focusing on and focusing on interest rates and things like that. When Brian was right, it's it's about what you can afford and whether it works for you and whether buying is worth it for that price and that things probably will regulate so we have to sort of have a long-term view i think the main takeaway for me is to make sure you're keeping an eye on your credit score because it's scary it's scary to always talk about credit score but it is really important and the fact that there are things that can happen that you don't even know about but there are ways to look at it and find those things out before you do anything so yeah just to keep an eye on your credit score even when you think you're fine always make keep an eye on it and be aware of what's going on and then you won't be caught out yes and we've got a good few articles on the site about credit score and what you can do to fix them i personally am obsessed with the clear score app it is very much about gamification for me um <laughs> i've also used experian identity services which is another way of checking your credit score you get it free for 14 days i think and it's really really in depth so it's basically both of them just provide you with a checklist to improving your credit score, but you should definitely check out our articles on the site as well. So thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of Make Your Move. We feel like we've learned a lot more about mortgages and we hope you do too. Next week, we are talking with Mr. Numbers about property data, what's happening in the industry, where are people moving, what kind of properties are they buying and where can you find a good deal? Tune in next time. listening to make your move the podcast here to make moving simple we hope you found this episode useful but as always everyone's situations are different 
so make sure to do your own research before making your move. Make Your Move is brought to you by Really Moving, the price comparison site for moving home services. If you have any experiences or questions you'd like to share or ask that might be put on a later episode, please email us at podcast at See you on the next episode. Thank you.